Welcome back to the Conduct Detrimental Podcast. This is your co-host, Dan Worley. I'm joined by my co-host, Dan Wallach. Dan, what's happening? Uh, Deflategate revisited. That's what's happening. Uh, our favorite sports topic of the year. Uh, you know, we've been asked to weigh in on what are the top sports law issues of 2016. I think this might be the top sports law issue in our careers. And, um, you know, the man who is at the center of Deflategate, uh, right in the heart of Boston, doing so much great reporting, is going to be our guest today. And uh, Bob is definitely one of our favorites. And I'm looking forward to uh, revisiting Deflategate and maybe having providing some closure on the topic, although there will never be closure. I mean, to this day, when I tweet anything that has any kind of a connection to Deflategate, I get more of a reaction. Even you know, months after the controversy ended, I, I get a I get more of a reaction to that than anything else. And this is like months after the fact. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure Michelle McGurk is still panning another amicus brief or something. Like that. <laughs> I don't think it's ever going to be over for her. She's given up. Can you believe that? She's absolutely given up. Uh, that is so unlike her. All right. Before yeah. we get too far ahead of ourselves, we really need to introduce our guest, uh, Bob McGovern from the Boston Herald. Bob did. Just a fantastic job uh, reporting on Deflategate over the last, what, 18 months or so. And uh, we're really excited to have him. When when Dan and I sat down for the first time and talked about this podcast, we we talked about, uh, you know, some of the episodes that we wanted to do right away. And and Deflategate was one of the first ones to come to mind. And and Bob was, you know, the first name that came to mind in that discussion as well. So we're really happy to have you. Bob, I know you've been uh, recovering from an illness this week. How are you feeling? Very good, very good. Now that it's uh, it's snowing here in Boston, so I got healthy just in time to shovel my car out and come into the office today. <laughs> Perfect. Glad yeah, we're putting we, you to work. Yeah, we've got a little bit of a chill here in Miami, too. It's gone down to the mid-70s, if you can believe that. Um... <laughs> long sleeves today, Dan. <laughs> we feel bad for you. We do. Um, so I guess, you know, a good place to start, I think, Bob is, um, you know, you have a legal background, you're a lawyer, um, you know, you've been covering legal stories for a while now. I mean, just talk to us about like what it was like to, to cover this legal story in Boston with, you know, the crazed Boston fans surrounding the story and all the hype that happened, um, you know, from, from the beginning and then through all the legal proceedings. I mean, it was uh, it was definitely one of the most interesting stories I've covered in my career. Uh, people were really, really into it, not just Patriots fans, but kind of some of the angrier fan bases who don't like the Patriots that much were super into it as well. So Twitter turned into an interesting place for me. But, uh, you know, one thing that occurred very quickly was I realized that it's going to be it. it People don't have the same basis of knowledge of the law as maybe some people like that, like that we may think they do. I mean, people don't know the difference between civil and criminal court. And, you know, for all they know, uh, Judge Susan Garsh, who presided over Aaron Hernandez, does the same thing that Judge Berman does. So, like, starting with that in mind, it was, it was very uh, challenging, but also kind of fun to put things in layman's terms. I mean, obviously, you guys helped me out a lot with that. Yeah, uh, Bob, did you did you find it difficult to maintain a sense of uh, objectivity? I mean, you're, you're first of all, you're a reporter, you're a lawyer, you analyze, uh, you know, issues, legal issues, uh, based on your knowledge of the law. But your audience is 
very much, you know, one-sided in how they view the the, the controversy, uh, largely largely coming in against the National Football League and siding with Tom Brady. Did you find it difficult to maintain a, a sense of balance without necessarily uh, irritating uh, a large portion of your fan base? Because you know, you take a look at at Ben Volen from the Boston, you know, Globe. He was pillared, you know, for. I mean, trying at least at the beginning to look at things from both sides of the equation. So what kind of a struggle was that for you, being in Boston? And I, I, I mean, I'm a Giants fan. So I mean, oh, good. So, Me too. I, I, have, uh, I have no allegiance to the Patriots. So this would sort of be like if I uh, you know, went, to, went, went to Philadelphia and had to cover the Eagles for somebody. So it didn't, the team, the player, didn't really matter that much to me. Um, to me, you know... It was easy to kind of come down on the side of the Patriots and Tom Brady because initially, as I read through things, I was putting myself in the position of, imagine if this was Eli Manning and the Giants. Imagine if what I considered to be fundamentally an unfair process occurred to my team. Um, so at the beginning, I was kind of just you know waiting for all the facts to come down. But then when I saw the Wells report, and then as things kind of transpired quickly from there, I think... I mean, and maybe this is just my opinion, but I think objectively, it looked like things were, were some unfair things were happening to the Patriots, and so that's kind of how I came down a lot of my reporting. And when there were missteps, uh, missteps that uh, you both notice as well on the side of uh, Brady and the union's attorneys, um, I said as much, and I told the readers that. And if they didn't like it, you know, that's uh, you know that's what I'm there for to tell them what's going on. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was uh, the the first window into the unfairness of the proceeding wasn't necessarily the Wells report, but when the trial, when the when the arbitration transcript and all the arbitration exhibits were unearthed, and the veneer was pulled away from those documents in a court filed document, that to me was the first you know telltale sign that wait a second, this was just outrageous. Uh, the trial or the arbitration appeal seemed like it was a, a railroad and and uh and and Brady's uh, you know Brady's rights uh you know if it wasn't clear from the Wells report it was certainly clear from the arbitration transcript and and I found that to be a, a relative a very shocking document in terms of uh how one-sided the NFL's approach was in in, in terms of how they handled evidentiary issues uh, I I don't think I don't think Brady got w- the benefit of anything on any evidentiary ruling, any witness issue, uh, the, the, the procedural unfairness became uh, um, you know, underscored just simply by reading that transcript. Yeah, and uh, frankly, it's when I saw the words general awareness for the first time. Mm-hmm. That's, that's when something clicked in my head that something was amiss because, uh, I mean, I just, to me, general awareness of a scheme to maybe deflate football seemed so... So uh, it didn't seem like they came down hard on anything. They paid uh, Ted Wells a lot of money to do an extensive investigation. And then when I saw general awareness of something that may or may not have happened, uh, and then that leading to a penalty just uh, days later, that's when I, you know, that's when it clicked to me that maybe, not to pick a side, but to maybe really look critically at what the NFL is attempting to do here. Right. I think one thing to me, even before all of that, I guess in the process of that, but if you just think about it and say, let's give the NFL the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that that Brady did everything that they're accusing him of. Is it still worthy of a four-game suspension? And I think the answer to that 
from the start was clearly no. There's no parallel case that uh, no player that's been suspended for anything similar. There's no real reason in the CBA for him to do so other than this sort of overarching power. And so that's what really triggered it for me as far as, wow, is, is the NFL really out to get their star player? And, you know, kind of looking back on it through that lens, I mean, do you guys think that in hindsight that the NFL would do this all over again or they would just sort of do a deflate gate two and, and ignore it? Well, they're ignoring it now. We have deflate gate two. <laughs> That's what I mean. Uh, you I know, mean, the, you, the, could, if you had wrapped. revisionist history, would they go back and, and treat deflate gate one like they treated deflate gate two? Well, well, Bob, Bob, we'll let Bob answer, you know, first. I have my own views on it, but go ahead. I mean, I think that they've won everything they need to win right now. If this thing was just a vessel for them to give uh, uh, Roger Goodell unfettered power through the court system, they got what they need to get. Um, so, I mean, if this was the vessel to get there, then there's, it's not necessary to bring uh, Deflategate 2 down. It's not necessary to cause this PR nightmare all over again. They've already got what they wanted. They, I mean, as far as I can tell, he has pretty much unchecked power. Um, I mean, we're going to see what happens to my Giants with this walkie-talkie scandal. But, I mean, there doesn't seem to be a need to cause the, a, another uh, hyphen gate all over again. If you've, you know, you've pretty much solidified yourself as, uh, you know, the judge, jury, and uh, hesitate to use the word, but I guess executioner in these cases. Well, I, I think the yeah, – go, go ahead, Dan. I'm good. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I think Bob's right. The NFL uh, does now has what they want. I don't know if the if the vessel or, or the, the the court outcome was what was desired at the outset. This was just a disciplinary, uh, you know, proceeding. But now, uh, you know, now having won that, they have the additional layer of of a second circuit court of appeals opinion. I think the NFL can pick and choose their battles, uh, knowing that uh, they will uh, they, they will likely discourage. Any litigation going forward. I mean, what are the, what is the likelihood of another case ending up before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit? So, so they've accomplished several several victories here. They've eliminated the District of Minnesota as a forum going forward. That was a favored forum of the Players Association in trying to battle any um, a, any of the NFL's uh, disciplinary decisions. That's now gone forever unless we're talking about a player for the Minnesota Vikings. And one thing that doesn't get enough attention is the NFL's conduct in how they chose the New York Forum. You know, we've, we've practiced, you know, we, we've been litigators, we've practiced in the courts. Usually you get an issue, issuance of a decision and a period of time following which a party has a right to decide whether to take it to court or, or for an appeal. The NFL never released the decision. They, is, they issued the decision virtually simultaneously with when they filed suit for declaratory judgment in the in the Southern District of New York. I, that is unprecedented in the annals of NFL litigation. And uh, but they won. They were never called uh, on the carpet for that kind of uh, ham handed procedural uh, shenanigans. So in the long run, they've got a New York forum as probably the preferred forum. They have a Second Circuit decision. I think this will have a chan- uh, I think this will have a, a channeling effect in discouraging any future litigation. And I'm so, and, and I'm skeptical that we will ultimately see a Deflategate two ever rise to that level. Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. Go ahead, Bob. Yeah, and it, 
I hesitate to say that. There's a lot of conspiracy theories uh, among the uh, Patriots fans that Goodell has it out for Brady himself for whatever reason, for the spy gate or the past or, you know, certain things that have, you know, that the Patriots are always one step ahead of the law, I guess. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't buy that. And I think that, I think that you're right. I think that this, uh, when it turned into litigation, uh, it, it turned into a power play for the NFL, which is why they, they ran to federal court to, to, to claim jurisdiction with They, uh, and the, the, and the funny thing is about that, as soon as judge Berman sided with Brady, Twitter blew up that he was, that he was in the bag for the Patriots, that he was somehow some sort of Patriots fan and was seen at, what was it? He was seen at some gala with the, the Patriots owner of like month. I mean, it turned into a mess really quickly. And uh, I mean, I guess that was all part of the fun of covering this thing. Yeah. And that was kind of the ironic part is the NFL fought so hard to keep the case in New York. And then they ultimately lost in front of judge Berman. Um, it just goes to show you that even, <sighs> You know, the Paul Clement of the world, who's the NFL's lawyer, who's arguably, uh, you know, one of the top lawyers in the country, you know, can make that kind of miscalculation. And ultimately, they won in the, in the appeals court. But um, it just goes to show you that every legal decision like that is really a balance and not necessarily a certainty. So, um, yeah, I mean, my takeaway on these things, the difference between winning and losing is often a very thin veneer. Uh, whether you win or lose often depends on uh, the judge you draw, uh, and in the and in and in the NFLPA's case and Brady's case, they got a great judge uh, on appeal. Uh, there were twelve or so potential judges in the pool for the Second Circuit. The, uh, the 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 league drew two out of three good judges. You 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 shuffle the deck again and pick another group of three judges. Maybe Brady wins the appeal. That's the that's the oddity about, you know, the law, the courts and precedent uh, that the same facts, the same legal issues, the same application of law to fact could lead to different results depending on judicial assignments. And when with the Second Circuit, we had a split decision. We had, we had a majority of two and a dissenting opinion. You remove Chin from the process or you remove uh, – oh, God, I forgot the name of the other judge. But you swap in a different judge, we might be looking at a completely different result months later. And uh, it's, it's, it's somewhat stunning that uh, years of precedent going forward – uh, and the effect of that precedent will, will, you know, turn on the identity of you know one particular judge being part of the panel. And uh, you know, walking into that that oral argument that day, it seemed as if Brady was winning it five minutes in, and then and then just the 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 the, the roof caved in. And I think Denny Chin was uh, particularly uh, overly fascinated with the factual elements of the case rather than the law. And 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 for me, I, I just shake my head sometimes. I've won. I've won some. I've lost some, and sometimes it's a matter of which judge you draw. Yeah, I remember uh, at, at halftime, so to speak, uh, of oral arguments that uh, we were all sitting together in that courtroom to peel back the curtain, and you turned around and said, "I think Brady's got this," and I mean, we were all in agreement. We were all like, "Yep, that, that's about right." Uh, it looks like the judges uh, just skewered the NFL, and there's no way that they can come back from this. But then. Um, yeah, things took a turn pretty quickly after that. I wasn't yeah, in the courtroom was fun... that day, and uh, it was interesting because that was my impression too. I had talked to a bunch of people going in. I had made my own opinions. I think everyone was under the opinion that Brady was the heavy favorite at that point. Um, and then I talked with people 
immediately coming out of the courtroom who were, who were in the courtroom, uh, Dan, I believe you were one of them. And, uh, it seemed like everyone had seen a ghost, you know, it was just a total through total 180. You know, it's now Brady's the complete underdog. I, I can't even imagine him winning after, you know, what they just went through. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what you guys saw as far as the lawyers there and how Jeffrey Kessler, Brady's lawyer reacted to some of the judges questions? I mean, I don't know if uh, I don't know if, if if Attorney Kessler was necessarily prepared for the amount of questioning around Brady's cell phone. Um, I, hes- I hesitate to use the word "prepared" here because obviously Attorney Kessler's uh, great attorneys prepared for mostly everything, but they really harped on that. And when you know there was question number seven about uh, Brady's cell phone, whether the, the cell phone was the deciding factor, whether you could punish him for the cell phone alone. Um, it started to look like uh, everybody but Judge was, was pretty much leaning towards uh, siding with the NFL. I mean, it, it's difficult to blame Kessler for uh, not being – he was prepared, uh, but the expectation of, of the oral argument uh, was that the issues would focus on appellate issues, arbitrator's discretion, and in a way, uh, deciding whether the cell phone destruction enough could have, sus- could have you know, justified a four-game suspension. I guess that was within the, uh, within the area of, of, of discussion. Um, he was prepared. The question is, uh, you know, we could all Monday morning quarterback the situation, but the you know the players' association couldn't have switched you know lead generals uh, before oral argument. He, let, let's not forget he won. He won before the district court. And uh, looking over the history of the Southern District of New York with arbitration decisions being vacated, the rate of vacator for labor arbitrations was less than five percent. And he was one of the outliers. And we're talking about the top sports litigator in the country. How would it have looked if uh, Brady had chosen to go with a different lawyer and then lost? I think the outcome would have, would have remained the same no matter who the lead horse was. And, uh, it's, you know, Paul Clement you know, has the you know, Midas touch. He's undefeated representing the National Football League. But I don't think this is a situation of one side outlawing the other side. Uh, I think these judges had their minds made up, at least two out of three of them did, maybe three out of three of them did. Uh, and nothing that took place during the oral argument, in my opinion, changed their minds. It would have been 2-1 if Bob and I had argued the cases and switched sides and argued the cases. That's how strongly I feel about it. It may have been three zero if I was arguing it, actually. Um, but I, and, and, and listen, I don't want anything I say to make it seem like I don't think uh, Attorney Castle is a great attorney. I was just myself struck by the questioning, and I think others in the room were as well, including Attorney Kessler. I don't. I think most of us went into it, as you both said, thinking that Brady had the lead after being behind for so long during this process. All of a sudden, he was the front runner, and then to kind of see. Uh, the way there, there was an, all of a sudden about face. I mean, the air came out of the room for those that thought that Brady was going to win the day and possibly set some uh, damaging precedent in the NFL's backyard. Yeah, that's a great thing about oral argument. Uh, there are never any mysteries. You know, we debated uh, uh, during the Judge Berman, uh, you know, 
oversight of the case. What was he playing poker? Was he just sort of being cagey, trying to get the uh, lawyers to settle the case? Uh, no such mystery with appellate oral arguments. You, you know, nine times out of ten, you walk out of that room, and you have a pretty, pretty good idea who, who won the appeal. So that's why the air got sucked out of the room, because we just knew it. We knew it. They weren't going to, you know, sort of tip their hand like that so obviously and then, you know, just, uh, you know, come out with a completely 180-degree different outcome. That's the brilliance of of appellate oral argument. I don't think I've ever missed a call on which side was going to win, especially when I'm not involved. I've sat in, you know, dozens, dozens of oral arguments not involving me, and my batting average for those are 1,000. It's pretty evident because everything is distilled to 15 or 20 minutes, um, and they get right to the point. And the points that matter to them. And, uh, you know, we knew there was no sense in waiting for the written decision. By the way, the written decision came out barely one month later. So, I mean, their minds were pretty clearly made up. Yeah, it's a good point. And I, uh, I found it just so bizarre that they really focused on the facts, uh, mm-hmm. especially the cell phone, like, like you guys mentioned during, uh, during the argument. That's usually not how it goes. Those weren't the stated issues in the briefs. But obviously... You know, when the judges see something that catches their eye that maybe hasn't been developed as much by the parties as they want, they're going to dig into that in oral argument. And I think that's what happened there. Um, Bob, you mentioned earlier um, our favorite uh, intervener in this case, Michelle McGuirk. Um, am I saying her name right? Do we know what how to say her name? I, I just call her Michelle McGurk because at UMass, the football stadium is McGurk. Alumni Stadium, and it's spelled the exact same way. So I, I'm, I'm just basing it on my prior knowledge. Here. Okay, we'll go with that. We'll go with McGurk. Uh, so for those who don't know, uh, McGurk uh, managed to wiggle her way into this case as an intervener at the district court level. Uh, she basically tried to appeal part of an opinion, which is just kind of wild to do. And then when the case was appealed, she managed to, to, to appeal her decision as well and sort of was tacked on to the appeal. So she was part of the court docket, part of the, I guess, part of the proceedings, although the court basically ignored her throughout the way. We um, were too. We were also part of the proceedings. Remember, we were named as respondents, Bob McGovern as well. Uh, Michelle McGurk at some point became particularly piqued by the fact that you and I would often uh, quote from her court filings and take a screenshot of the image of one of her uh, court filings and put it out there on Twitter, and she sought the equivalent of an injunction to prevent us from using Pacer to, uh, you know, to uh, discuss what happened in the case. And she named me, she named you, she named Bob, she named Michael McCann, of all people, and, uh, and, and the entire Brady uh, Deflategate legal squadron as respondents. I was tempted to file a response just so that I can insert myself into the case for time immemorial. <laughs> uh, yeah, again, the uh, Second Circuit ignored that opinion, but it was our uh, brief, I guess you would call it a claim to fame in Deflategate, where we were actually part of the proceedings. And interestingly... The same thing happened in the Derrick Rose case, too, a few months later. So, um, But uh, going back to just McGuirk in general, I mean, Bob, did you – she was kind of this mysterious creature. We never really knew who she was. Someone apparently spotted her at the Second Circuit oral arguments, but that was about it. Did you ever you know, try to reach out to her, try to interview her? I spent four hours one day tracking her down. 
I found uh, I found where she lived in New York. Um, I found multiple addresses for her. I found multiple phone numbers. Um, if her address is the same that as the one that she was forced to put on her filings in this case, uh, she has been fairly litigious in the past um, she, in state and federal court. Um, I've sought attorneys who have uh, represented her. I was not able to get them. I've mailed her directly at her P.O. box and her mm-hmm. home address, and she has never, ever responded to me. That's I brilliant. Her, her, attorneys, her, her attorneys in other cases are also elusive? <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, to be fair, I only gave them about one call each because at some point it's Michelle McGurk and not Watergate. But, I mean, I just – I really, really wanted to speak to her because I wanted to see what the motivation was. And she's – I mean, she's a very – she's a she, – Reading her filings in other cases, and actually some of the filings in this, I mean, she's a she's obviously a, a capable writer. I mean, she can put things together. I mean, she's not an attorney, but uh, you know, she she knows her way around the court system, uh, whether it be New York State Court or you know, apparently the federal docket too. Uh, you know, in some capacity. I mean, it's, she wasn't very effective in Deflategate, but the, the very dangerous for pro se to have the, for pro se litigant to have that kind of knowledge. I mean, uh, they're often the the scourge of the court system with multiple serial filings. And she took this case, not just from the district court to the Second Circuit, but she made an emergency application to Ruth Bader Ginsburg at the U.S. Supreme Court to to stay the Second Circuit's mandate. And I, I don't know what her end goal was, but had that application been granted. Maybe Brady wouldn't have been suspended, which brings me to my next question uh, to you. Are you surprised at the suddenness at which Brady gave up the uh, legal battle? Because he had one more – he had two more uh, hands to play. He could have filed uh, an an application for a stay with the U.S. Supreme Court and and then going beyond that uh, sought cert review from the U.S. Supreme Court. Were you surprised? No, because I – at that point, I think just the certainty of knowing when you will be back and when you will be suspended, I, I, I thought that that, that that carried some weight, at least in my opinion. He knew he was going to miss the first four games, that it wasn't going to be missing playoff games yep. or you know, playoff games in the middle of the season if indeed you know, cert was denied. So I think that uh, you know, he just – once once he lost, I, it seemed pretty, pretty obvious that he was just going to take it because – you know, if he had, he could be missing a game this Sunday, for all we know. You know, if he hadn't done that, and that would be uh, a lot more damaging in the home stretch of the season. Yeah. After I, I love the move of his when he restructured his contract to move most of his salary into bonuses. So when he was suspended, <laughs> that he really only lost, I don't know, a few hundred thousand dollars rather than a few million dollars. That was a a pretty brilliant move on his part. <laughs> Yeah, it's clever, a clever, uh, clever maneuvering. I like that too. Um, but yeah, do you guys? So, my understanding was, and maybe you guys can educate me on this, is that they were going to move on without him. There was still the idea that his attorneys would move on without him and potentially uh, appeal to the Supreme Court. They didn't necessarily need him. Uh, they were still there's still a conflict of law, I presume, in their minds. Isn't there still a chance this thing can go to the Supreme Court without Tom Brady on board? Well, not not anymore. The deadline for filing a petition for writ with the U.S. Supreme Court uh, came and went at some point in October. But that does beg the question, and it's one that has mystified me as well. You know, Brady could have 
foregone an attempt to stay his suspension, but that wouldn't that shouldn't have impacted the NFLPA's decision to at least take one more kick at the can, right? If if the NFLPA had filed a petition for it of certiorari in, in in mid-October and it's denied, as probably would have occurred, uh, that's no skin off Brady's back. I mean, it, it, he he faced his suspension and and he could have lost nothing more. And that kind of a hail mary by the NFLPA, I'll use a football expression. Even if it had a, 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 a slight or infinitesimal chance of success, it did keep open the possibility that uh, the Supreme Court could have vacated the Second Circuit's decision and we'd be looking at a new landscape legally going forward. Now, I still don't understand why the NFLPA gave up that chip. I know it's Brady's decision. Ultimately, he's the real party in interest. But the NFLPA was also a party to lit- litigation, and there are hundreds of other players that could be impacted uh, by the Second Circuit's ruling. So I, w- I, was, I was shocked that the NFLPA, while Brady <clears throat> took his punishment, that the NFLPA didn't try to take it to the final frontier. Yeah, I agree that I was surprised by that. And, and, and just so how it looks you know, procedurally, the NFLPA can just continue on and it would be a pure legal question. Whereas, you know, even if Tom Brady gave up the case, he could serve the suspension. I don't mm-hmm. believe that that would moot the case, although there was sort of an argument out there that that may happen and, and the NFLPA couldn't have continued the case. But sort of the well, other... He's still got the money. He's got the money that he's lost. So, right. you know, that's There's still, still an, injury. Uh, an right. aggrieved injury or an aggrieved, you know, position. Right. Um and there was sort of this other interesting dynamic happening at the same time, which was the Adrian Peterson case. We were waiting on the Adrian Peterson decision from uh, a different federal appellate court. And if the um, that decision had gone the other way, there would be what's called a split in the circuits. And from there, that makes the case up to the Supreme Court much more likely because it says two federal appellate courts are disagreeing. We need you to come in and settle this disagreement and that's usually the type of cases that the supreme court takes although it still would have been a long shot it would have been more likely at that point but as we know the peterson case peterson also lost that so um there wasn't a split um and i guess I, my only explanation for the nflpa not continuing it was it was just such a lost cause that they would just be essentially a waste of money um to you know put together the petition to the supreme court i, I can't really think of any other reason not to yeah, well, there's always the First Circuit uh, or the Ninth Circuit. Bob, do you uh, ever think back to uh, why Brady uh, didn't try to file in Boston instead of Minnesota? We know that the NFL jumped the gun and filed their case in the Southern District of New York, but the Players Association responded uh, pretty swiftly and selected Minnesota as a forum. Uh, do you ever wonder why Boston wouldn't have been the likely, you know, hometown venue? I think if you're looking at, uh, you know, trying to get home cooking, the best chances for success, I would think Brady filing in federal court in Boston uh, would have been a great shot across the bow. And and um, you're talking about a true home court advantage. What was their thinking in selecting? And we know why they selected Minnesota, all of the prior precedent. But Bo- to me, Boston would have been a, an obvious uh, venue choice. I mean, it seems like it was. Uh, it was, seems like it was just the Judge Doty factor, if, if I uh-huh. if I remember correctly, uh, that uh, if they could somehow get into his court, that they stood a great chance of winning. Um, you know, I, I guess the, the question never came up. I never thought to ask them why they didn't uh, file in Boston. I guess it could have given them a uh, you know definitely a home a home uh, home field advantage, but 
You know, I, I don't. Does that does that play really in federal courts? Like, I, I, I frankly haven't practiced in the federal courts. I know in state courts, there's always the concern you're going to get some home cooking from the judges. Um, but I'm not sure. Does that uh, does that kind of uh, pan over to the federal side? Well, there is. I'll give you a quick personal story, and it's a Tom Brady story, actually. <clears throat> I, I got I got dished or I got served home cooking in the Southern District of Florida before a federal judge. Uh, and one of my opponents at, at a status conference, no less, tried to um, um, ask for relief that was not part of the scope of the status conference. And I was objecting. I go, you know, Your Honor, um, this is not, you know, presented to the court. Uh, they're trying to, you know, argue future issues that have not yet occurred. And, you know, the judge said to me in ruling against me, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of things that I would like in life, Mr. Wallach. Uh, I would like to be married to Tom Brady. But I know I'm not going to be. And, you know, just just like the same, you know, you're not going to get what you want. And the reason I bring this up and I won't name the judge, but there was the, 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 the hint of a uh, relationship, a professional relationship between the judge and my opponent. My opponent had a great deal to say about her getting appointed her or him to the federal bench and it happens in state court or federal court whether whether it's uh, an elected judge an article three judge a, a governor appointed judge they're all human beings and i believe you know that there is a degree at least in some instances of home cooking and uh you know a dispute like deflate gate being litigated in a boston federal court i think that would have been that i think that would have been in the air and uh um, you know could have resulted in a diff different outcome but the, the lawyers made a strategic choice to you know roll the dice and hope that they would get david doty there's no guarantee that they would have ever gotten him and they did not get him david doty is not the reflexive you know, default choice for every NFL controversy. He's gotten most of them, but as we've seen in the past, uh, Susan Susan Nelson in Minnesota has been assigned cases. And uh, you know, if I if I were to criticize one decision, it was the election of the PA not to file in Boston. I think that could have uh, been a significant difference or, or difference maker because maybe the Boston judge does not kick the case back to New York. Yeah, the, the, you know, the principle in federal court is this first filed rule, whichever case gets filed first rests jurisdiction, uh, but there are also exceptions to that. And one of the exceptions is a fraudulent or preempt preemptive filing. And I think the facts were pretty clear here that the NFL engaged in um, you know, some kind of uh, underhanded conduct in resting the forum choice away from an appellant. It's the appellant that has the forum choice, not the respondent, not the appellee. And that's the opposite of what took place here. And that was the fun part of covering this, by the way. One of the fun parts of covering this is that to, to the three of us and to other people in the legal realm, you look at that move by the NFL and you go, wow, that is shady. Uh, that's, the, you know, you, you kind of did that. You had like a page boy outside the court just to make sure you claim jurisdiction. But the average reader doesn't know what that even means. They don't know what this jurisdictional thing means, why jurisdiction matters, how jurisdiction occurs. So trying to explain it to them in terms that uh, I think resonate, that it is sort of a race to court and, uh, you know, uh, did, did everything they could to make sure it is in their own backyard. You know, I, that was part of what I enjoyed about covering this is kind of explaining this to people who understand what a zone read is, but may not understand what personal jurisdiction is. Yeah, it was a fascinating case in that it um, uh, elevated uh, discussion on so many issues that are foreign uh, to lay people. 
in many cases, uh, strange to even lawyers. Um, <clears throat> the law surrounding judicial confirmation of arbitration awards, that's pretty in the weeds, even for most practitioners, especially non-litigators. But for litigators who don't practice in the arbitration ses- uh, setting, this case was like going to school on so many areas of the law Civil procedure, uh, appeals, personal jurisdiction, venue, arbitration, uh, standards of review. Um, And and one of the great things about getting into sports law as a commentator is I feel like I've learned more in the last two or three years than I ever have practicing cases. Because when you practice, uh, you're pretty much in a, a specific zone of subject matter. And you, you try to specialize where you can, but sports law, it comes at you fast and furious. And uh, whether it's Aaron Hernandez, criminal you know, case law or, 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 uh, or Deflategate, it is just an, this incredible advanced like master's education in law. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, for me, I'm, Dan, is a, Dan Wallach is an appellate lawyer, so I think that stuff comes very natural to him. For me, I've handled a few appeals, but... Um, it's not my bread and butter. So going through that whole process, I learned a ton about the en banc process uh, here and also in the sports betting cases. Um, I've learned and now I feel like I'm an expert on how that all works and even mm-hmm. talking about how you know things get petitioned to the Supreme Court. Um, so it, it was cool. And I think you know part of the coolest, one of the best parts for me for you know on my website of writing about this and I take probably a more legal approach than than you're forced not to, Bob, because you have a more mainstream audience. Um, was hearing the, kind of the feedback that people were learning a little bit more about the legal process, and I think that's um, something that everyone should know about. And I think cases like this make it fun enough for people to learn about these sort of things, and so that's almost the most beneficial part of this whole thing from our perspective. Yeah, for example, there's a person who sent me an email asking is Tom Brady going to go to jail? Um, <laughs> I explained that, uh, no, that, that, that Mr. Brady will be fine, and at worst he misses four games. But, and then I tried to, in a few paragraphs, just in an email, explain the difference between criminal and civil matters. And so at the very least, there's one person out there that uh, you know, got a little bit of an education out of this thing. Yeah, and uh, I think law school applications to uh, uh, schools in the Boston area are going to be up on the uh, you know up on the rise. I mean, think of how captivated you know uh, millions in the in the New England area were by this case. I would have to think that this controversy and the sense of outrage that people feel may have spurred a rise in law school applications. Have you heard of any instances where someone has made a, a definitive career choice and said, you know, I want to I want to become a lawyer uh, because of you know, just the injustice uh, that they experienced in this matter or the outrage that they feel? Uh, I actually spoke at a Suffolk Law School class about the Flategate, um, and uh, the professor told me it was one of the more well-attended classes he's had, and he teaches a sports law over there. And so people showed up, and they were interested. And, uh, yeah, they had some good questions, some of which I didn't have answers to because I don't know if anyone does, but... Um, you know, it was it was uh, it was interesting explaining this to uh, you know young future lawyers. What one thing I, I just want to bring up here, and this is sort of maybe it was just insular here to the Boston area, but sports or radio commentators, um, you know, sports writers giving uh, attorneys like that, that have been watching this case a hard time 
for getting things wrong. Say for, for being like, oh, all the attorneys said that he had no chance in front of Judge Berman. All the attorneys, oh, they said they had no chance there, that he was going to win in front of the, the Court of Appeals. I mean, these guys don't know anything, yada, yada, yada. What hypocrisy. These guys pick games every weekend and they get wrong. And this is the law. I mean, this is a, you know, this is even more difficult to pick than that. And uh, it was one of those things where I watched it and I was like, you know what? If you, if you, if you don't want to listen to what the attorneys have to say, then guess. Because your guess, frankly, is as good as anybody else's. And what we're doing is replying the facts to what we know to try to make an educated opinion. If you want us to say it's 50-50 every single time, no one's going to read us. So well, I- uh, <laughs> I, I went pretty, uh, pretty uh, in deep on the Brady side, so I didn't feel uh, any sense of uh, criticism from any, from any quarter in Boston. I, I think early on, when I when I read the transcript of the uh, first or second court hearing before Judge Berman, it seemed pretty obvious to me that uh, Berman had. Um, that, had issues with so many of the NFL's positions that I had this epiphany that there was absolutely no, very little chance that that Brady wasn't going to win, and I, I called it as such. So I got the other side of that. Uh, my my profile and the respect for my opinions was elevated in Boston because I, you know, chose uh, to to sign to to cast my lot with the with the Brady uh, side of the law, and I turned out to be right in the lower court. And you know, in 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 an area where there's just so much passion, uh, people aren't going to see things uh, neutrally. They're going to. Um, like or, or or give more attention to the voices that reinforce what they believe. And in Deflategate, at least in the lower court opinion, uh, I, I thought Brady was going to win, and the attention that I got in Boston was commensurate with that. Had I said that Brady was going to lose, then I would have been on the uh, I, I would have been on the other side of, of the perception, and I would have been criticized as someone who doesn't know what he's talking about. So it's just like with politics. Have you guys been asked the question? Do you think he did it? I've been. I've been asked that question many, many times by people. Um, I remember similar to, uh, not exactly similar, but during the Aaron Hernandez trial, people would ask me, do you think he did it? And you got to you can't say anything. I mean, what do you, you know, it's, a, as, you, it's your, as a reporter, as an attorney, you can't just throw out whether you think someone's guilty or not guilty. Um, did you guys get that question about Tom Brady uh, throughout this process? Do you, like, as it, as its own, do they... Ask, did he do it? Yeah, I think every day, um, or every day it was in the news at least. You know, I think that's what people want to know. They want to come to you and they want your prediction and they want, oh, did he do it? Like I, like we were, you know, some kind of fortune teller. That's just not true. And I, for me, it was like more fascinating to focus on the legal issues and those sort of things, which is sort of out of line with what the, the layman just wants to get to the end point. Um, but definitely get a lot of that. You know, in other cases – we get that all the time as well, and whether he's guilty or not. And, and the thing about this case, which, which kind of going back to our last question, was the, the interesting thing for me was that the support was so one-sided in this case. I mean, pretty much nobody out there, unless you just hated the Patriots because you like the rival team, was you know cheering for Roger Goodell in the NFL. So um, it was certainly difficult to take a position against – the Patriots, even if you thought it was right, because you knew you were going to draw all this criticism back to you. But uh, at the same time, you know that when you think it's true, you have to do it. So, um, but I, I was kind of in, in Dan's boat as well, as pretty much being pro Patriots and pro Brady the whole way, just yeah. because 
of how things happen. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the, I don't get asked that question a lot. Did he do it? Uh, but I will say this: um, quarterback of, of of all the positions on the team, uh, I think quarter, a quarterback is more of a control freak about all elements of his game and what affect his performance than any other player in that locker room. And w- w- did he do it? Did, what did he do? Uh, I would have to think that Tom Brady is precisely aware, not just generally aware, of what the weight of his football should be. And is, does that mean he did it? Um, it, it was irrelevant. Uh, by the time I um, got involved in, in looking at this case and trying to uh, rationally think, think about it, it wasn't about guilt or innocence. It was about the uh, the fairness of the proceeding, the evidentiary rulings that went against him. Did Tom Brady receive a fair day in court? Were the proceedings fundamentally unfair? That was always what I hung my hat on in in when I opined about it. It was it was beyond fact finding at that point. Uh, it was you know scope of the punishment, punishment fitting the crime. It was it, it was. A, a question of hearing, due process, and a sense of proportion as to whether the uh, uh, whether the uh, accused conduct merited a suspension of that magnitude under the terms of the party's contract, the collective bargaining agreement. So, uh, did he do it? Did he not do it? Uh, it's it's besides the point. This case was not about guilt or innocence. Uh, but if you ask me, if I think he knew of not a scheme, but he, he 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 was he was he's a control freak about all aspects of the football, and it would not be completely uh, a foreign subject to him to know what the weight of the footballs are. He probably demanded it, but uh, does that mean he did it or that he he committed some kind of an integrity violation? I don't think so. I think all of the quarterbacks around the league take this uh, you know view as to uh, wanting the balls to be of a certain weight and to single out Tom Brady. Uh, and then not, uh, and then not, and, and then not question the NFL, or not question the Giants, or or you know other teams about ticky tack violations like that. I think I think goes to the real heart of the, the problem, which is a, 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 this disproportion between the alleged crime and the punishment, and of course the process and the hearing that was afforded the accused. That's where the real issues lie in the case, not guilt or innocence. Yeah, yeah that what, was that was for me like the hard one of the hardest parts about sort of being involved in it and trying to explain to people that it's it's not about whether he did it or not. Nobody really knows whether he did it or not other than him and maybe the ball boys, um, and we're not going to find that out. Really what this is about is the process at this point and uh, whether or not the NFL applied a fair suspension and had a fair process in doing so. Yeah, and it's, yeah, and it's also – whether or not he did it seems immaterial. It's whether or not, and, and this goes for all cases that I cover, it's whether or not the charging body proved that that person did it. They could have done it in broad daylight, but if you can't prove that that person did it, then it doesn't matter. And I think that that's something I try to get across to people because that is the reason why we have courts. That's why we have rules of law is to make sure that charging bodies are held to some standard uh, you know, above our own. Yeah, and, and the difference in this case is that there was no accountability. The, the charging body in this case, whether or not it proved its charges, it got to decide whether it proved its charges. So unlike a court of law or, or a, a state court judge or a federal court judge where you have varying standards of review, a de novo review, 
the NFL in this case was in a quite different posture because it got to decide uh, guilt or innocence. It got to decide uh, punishment and, more importantly, um, decided on the uh, substance of the appeal. So by the time Tom Brady entered the court system, uh, he was already he was already DOA. Given the uh, extreme deference that courts, uh, you know, def- uh, give to arbitration decisions, and this wasn't really like a true arbitration. This was like a disciplinary proceeding. Plus, uh, Brady never got the benefit of a, a uh, of, of a of a de novo standard of review or an unbiased fact finder. Uh, so at each level up that he went, you know, to the to the arbitration appeal and then to the district court and, and then the appellate court proceeding, the standard of review was stacked heavily against him. And he had to run that gauntlet and not just win, you know, one out of three. He had to win the last one, most importantly. And, uh, you know, to this day, the, 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 the final score is going to be NFL one, Brady zero. But it, it, it's not quite like that because of the difficulty of, of overturning an NFL uh, disciplinary charge. So i got a question for you guys. Um, you know, this is kind of a hypothetical that I've put towards people, and I'll do the same with you here. Like, let's use the Giants, for example. If Eli Manning is generally aware that another player on his team is taking steroids, under the uh, powers that Roger Goodell has, can he be suspended? Can he be suspended for four games? Or is that, uh, is that not exactly uh, a, a good parallel? Uh, well, it's, it's different because it doesn't impact how well that – Manning could play the game um, because it's not him directly. It's on him throwing the footballs would be my argument. But my argument would also be that Goodell does have the power to suspend him under that. He just powers is so sweeping right now. There's really, if you look, take a close look at the second circuit opinion, you'll see that he doesn't need to explain his opinions. Well, he, I mean, he can basically just railroad them and call it a suspension under his section article 46 powers, Conduct Detrimental, the name of our podcast, and go from there. And, and pretty much you can do whatever we want. Uh, Dan, what do you think? Well, at some point, uh, the NFL's winning streak will, will run out. Remember, at this point a year ago, we were um, musing over how the NFL kept losing each and every time it ended up before a neutral fact finder, you know, whether it was uh, Barbara Rice and the Ray, I'm sorry, Barbara Jones and the Ray Rice case. Or uh, the Bounty Gate decision before uh, Paul Tagliabue, and uh, of, of course, yeah. So, so the NFL was like, you know, lost six in a row. Now the NFL has won one, two cases in a row, and at some point your luck runs out. There's a, pe- a swinging pendulum of justice, and if the NFL tried a ham-handed maneuver, uh, such as suspending a player for being generally aware of another player's steroid use. That fact pattern is so would be so absurd to lead to a result that favors the NFL that I think um, you know it would end up in court, and the NFL could and could, could conceivably see a, a, a new federal appellate opinion curtailing the commissioner's powers or at least chipping away at the Second Circuit's precedent in Deflategate. So uh, you got to tread carefully here. I think the NFL um, should take its win, put its win in its pocket, and selectively use it where the, where, the, where the circumstances and facts warrant it. Should the NFL go overboard and overreach in its disciplinary powers? Um, I, I, 
I, th- I think it's uh, I think it's win or at least the precedent of Deflategate could be short lived if it uses that power in a way that is completely illogical and flies in the face of uh, of law. I think we all can agree that this case that we're talking about was an illogical use of power on, on behalf of Roger Goodell, mm-hmm. and he still won. And the fact is. Not only did he win, but now he has two federal appellate decisions in his favor that are going to be binding or the best precedent over these other decisions they've lost moving forward. And so I think until something's collectively bargained to change how this system works, that the NFL for the next three or four years can do basically whatever they want. Yeah. And and not going to be helped by a Donald Trump presidency with – the appointment of judges that would tend to espouse conservative judicial philosophies. So over the course of time, the the balance or the mix within the federal courts over the next four years or, God forbid, eight years uh, will probably skew more towards upholding that kind of Second Circuit and Eighth Circuit precedent rather than uh, reshuffling the deck and maybe having a, a different panel take a, a, a fresher look at Deflategate or Peterson in a future case. So uh, I, I think taking the longer view, uh, this is not going to get any easier for the players. Donald so, Trump, Deflategate are really the stories of 2016, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> so along those lines, I mean, uh, we're looking ahead. We're seeing, you know, the NFL CBA expires in, I think, 2021. So we have four years more under this current CBA, when negotiations come back up, I mean, has has Deflategate and, and some of these other cases that we've seen where players appear to be, you know, railroaded or treated poorly or just kind of exposed the current arbitration system of Goodell giving out the suspension and then sitting as the arbiter over his own decision and sort of the inherent fair, unfairness in that process has these cases shown enough to you guys to really make this a priority for the NFLPA in negotiations in the next CBA to the point where, you know, they would be willing to lock out if, if Goodell doesn't give up some of his power. I mean, I would, I would, I would assume so. It has to be. I mean, it directly affects the players. It directly could potentially affect any single player in the league. And so what's the union there for is to protect them. Um, I assume now that you have uh, binding precedent in two different circuits that the NFL is coming from a point of strength when it comes to negotiations. Uh, so you have to you have to assume the players have to give something up if they want the NFL to do the same. Uh, whether that means more games, whether that means more preseason, or you know whatever, uh, if whatever it's going to be, I guarantee it puts more money in the NFL's pocket, not less. So it's uh, I, that, that I assume the NFL is coming from a position of power. The players are going to have to try to uh, you know take some of it back, but you know it's going to cost them. I, I have to guess it's going to cost them. Yeah, I'm I'm more of a cynic, and you know the the players are signing uh, you know these you know, very lucrative deals. By way of example, you know Janoris Jenkins, who's playing wonderfully for the New York Giants. You know Bob's a Giant fan, so am I. 
He's probably earned every penny of it, but he just signed a free agent contract that pays him $16 million annually. Uh, and going forward, uh, those numbers are, are going to keep going up and up and up. And I'm not, uh, I'm not convinced, and uh, I, I'm skeptical that um, a body of players that don't play for very long, the shelf life of a National Football League player on average is less than five years. Uh, I don't see the players striking or, or maintaining, uh, maintaining their solidarity over who gets to decide disciplinary appeals in a, just a handful of cases when the bigger issue for the players is the piece of the pie that they get and ensuring that they uh, can, can continue earning those kinds of contracts because sitting out a full year while an antitrust case is pending is, is not an option for players that have an average playing career of less than five years. So at some point, it's a leverage play uh, for the NFL to give some of that up in exchange for um, you know maintaining either the current allocation between the players and the owners on revenues, or paring it back, or having it only go up just a little bit, so the so the so the so the owners hold all of the cards here, and the players will never be in a position millionaires fighting against billionaires. It's a losing battle every time, and this issue does not rise to the level of being one to sit out a season for. Yeah. So at some point, it becomes a quid pro quo for something. I think if you take a closer look at the negotiation dynamics of this situation, where I think the players recognize that it's unfair, but I also think that not a single player out there thinks that it's going to affect them, right? So mm-hmm. I'm sure Tom Brady was in that position. He was like, well, I, I worry about my fellow players, but I don't think I'm going to be in the position where this discipline process is going to impact me before it like it, obviously. And um, so at the end of the day, when they're coming down to, well, do we have to give up a piece of the pie, or the you know, uh, more guaranteed contracts, something that's very important to the players, something with health, um, you know, 18 game schedule. Is that what we're going to give up for something that impacts two to three players, maybe four players a year? And at the end of the day, when they're voting on that, it's just an issue that's probably going to get passed over again. And I'll, I'll guarantee you that the NFL is going to take an extremely hard line on this issue. Goodell's been on the record multiple times saying that one of the most important things to him is quote unquote integrity of the game. And he views integrity of the game as his ability to control the judicial system and if he doesn't have the appeal power or the power to sit over the appeals he doesn't think that he has control you know the the ability to control the integrity of the game and I think um that's something that he, I just don't see him giving up you know I think since yeah. he's been elected he's had all those sound bites and um but, but, it'll but, be it'll be interesting to see I'm I'm it, intrigued it's getting out of hand, though. I mean, every day brings new announcements of fines, suspensions. Um, if you if you compare um, the Roger Goodell NFL versus the Paul Tagliabue NFL or the Pete Rozelle NFL, it's like night and day. And the more he does this, I think it drives a wedge uh, between the league and its players. And if there were ever going to be, and I know I just said it's not worth sitting out over, but if there was ever going to be a battle, uh, or a real, uh, you, you know, you know, a battle for, uh, you know, for control here and something worth striking over, I think Goodell is has been such an extremist in how he's applied uh, the rules against players and suspended them that uh, they're never going to be as unified as they are now in their utter hatred of, of, of Goodell and the way that the system probably is. So I think a smart move for the NFL would be to, you know, let Goodell ride into the sunset before the next round of CBA negotiations comes along because he's a rallying point. He's a rallying point not only for the players, 
but for the for the media now and the court of public opinion. And the NFL had a significant PR advantage uh, during the 2007 lockout. Uh, I don't think a 2021 oh, it was a 2011 lockout. I don't think the 2021 lockout will see anywhere near the same kind of sympathy and support for the NFL's position vis-a-vis the players. Not not when not when owners are uh, are picking up and leaving cities and and and, and uh, showing such disloyalty to markets like San Diego and Oakland. And you're reading about what the franchises are selling for. Uh, I think public opinion and 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 the opinion in the press has been crystallized heavily against uh, you know what the NFL has been uh, engaged in recently. And if if the players were going to have a perfect storm for success, at least if not in the courtroom, at least in the PR battle, I think 2020-21 is shaping up to be a very strong uh, uh, situation for the players if they marshal the unity. And can stay together, but ultimately uh, they don't have the upper hand here, at least with the negotiations and at least with the leverage of uh, you know sitting out a game or sitting out a year when when the when the owners could easily forego a year's worth of revenues because they're billionaires anyway. So uh, I, I think it's going to be a big uh, a big battle in 2021. But I just don't see the players having the staying power, although the stars are aligning. For, 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 for the battle to end all battles here if Goodell is still at the helm. Yeah, but you also, I mean, they have to, you know, have to keep an eye on television revenues and see, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of time between now and 2021, and you see those, there's the early season uh, television revenues going down. I mean, the, the, Goodell's job is to make sure that the owners make money. I mean, I think if, if you had to boil down what his job description is, if the league starts losing money, um, I think that is a situation where all of a sudden, the play- who knows who, I mean, I don't know if the players get more leverage, but there's more leverage to go around if all of a sudden the uh, the bottom line starts dropping out. I mean, that's something to be seen in the future, but I mean, you can almost, you, you can kind of tell that the, the railroad momentum that the NFL had, has, is starting to slow at least a little bit. It's not just the, you know, Jesus take the wheel, this thing's never going to end. It's starting to slow a little bit. And if it slows too much, then Goodell himself could be in trouble. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And if you look at the past two NBA negotiations, I think that's very instructive. So this most recent one, they just agreed to one the last week. Um, the NBA is in a great financial position. They didn't want to screw it up. Uh, as opposed to the one before that, they were in a tough financial position. Owners were claiming that they were losing money. It caused a labor dispute, a shortened season. And I think at the end of the day, if the money's coming in, they're going to, both sides are going to find a way to come to an agreement you know, these other issues are sort of ancillary. Um, but if it's not, if there's really going to be financial issues and, and we see the ratings drop, and it, and I think your point, if they're not making more, you know, even if they're still making money, but it's just less than they had been, um, you know, we could see a situation where, you know, we're, we're in for a big change. And obviously the TV market and the TV revenues is a, is a moving number at this point with, with ESPN losing half a million uh, subscribers every month. Um, there's been some talk of, I read an article about how Disney, the the author thought Disney should spin off ESPN because it's just a, it's a sinking anchor at this point. And I don't necessarily agree with that. I think there's new ways to create revenue, but um, it's definitely, I, I think to Bob's point, we have a few years away and there's going to be a lot of changes between now and then. Yeah, agreed. Uh, but uh, I do, I do expect, 
uh, someone other than Roger Goodell to be leading those negotiations in 2021. It is a long time away. Really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, he's making so much money. He's making the owners so much money still. He is literally their shield against everything. He's shown a willingness to take all the criticism and basically get paid for it. So I, I... Unless he voluntarily steps down, which I also don't see happening, and he's young enough where I don't think that's an issue before the CBA, um, I, I don't see it happening. Not to say that that's it would it would be a bad move. I think it would be a good move, but I just the dynamics of it, I, I disagree that it'll happen before then. Yeah, I, I just think his insertion in the process uh, would create a dynamic and would create a sideshow and embolden. Uh, the players uh, to stick to their guns on on you know their unity and and uh, you know uh, fighting for what they you know want in terms of eliminating the current disciplinary system or at least changing it and if the NFL were to uh, have a different point person, it might make for smoothened negotiations um, you know michelle roberts and, and and Adam Silver are proof positive how a how a positive working relationship can can eliminate all the you know collateral issues and focus not on the personalities, but in trying to get a deal done. And I believe, you know, Goodell's personality combined with Kessler's, you know, because Kessler will be part of this, uh, could be a toxic combination. I tell you, there won't be many uh, tears shed in the New England area if uh, (laughs) Mr. Goodell steps down. Um, I think it will be a day for celebration around these parts. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great thing about Deflategate, uh, if we're going to wrap it up, and uh, you know, revisit an issue. The 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 one takeaway for me, all the great new people that I met during this long and winding road, which less, lasted less than one year, uh, but I met more people in this case, more new people. I knew Bob, I think, before Deflate Gate, uh, but Bob certainly one of one of the the many, and certainly one of the most prominent uh, relationships that were fostered. By 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 the Deflategate case, and I don't think I'll see another one like this that crosses over so many boundaries of you know uh, sports, media, and law uh, that you know ex- expose both Dan and I to so many so many cool new people. Bob, did you have the same experience in 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 your uh, relationships and and meeting different folks across so many you know divides? Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I was actually kind of happy uh, that the the NFL got the case in in New York because if it was in my backyard, it would have been a lot of the same crowd that I meet and talk to every day. Um, but it was good to get to New York, meet a lot of the guy, you know, meet a lot of attorneys, a lot of uh, good reporters. Um, yeah, and it really was an interesting cross section. I mean, you have sports reporters, you know, uh, rubbing shoulders with news guys who are talking to attorneys and. And it was really a, and it was a circus. I mean, come on, I mean, to, to get to get out of court, we had to run down the stairs. I had some guy outside holding my phone so I could just quickly start tweeting. And it was, uh, I mean, it was awesome. That was ridiculous. That was kind of an archaic rule. I remember you and I experienced that circus together for the Second Circuit oral argument. We couldn't bring our phones into the court. We were uh, we were shepherded into a into a holding area that was almost 
like it was like a, a terror, like a, a, an Al Qaeda trial uh, where they would only take four people at a time, groups of eight, and move them into the courtroom. I had to take your phone. Remember, we found a, a holding place for your cell phone in the Fox News truck, uh, and it was just such a weird thing to actually have to have all of these uh, you know, barriers imposed upon us. But it was all worth it. I mean, all those hours of waiting, the line. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll never forget the day that we were, we were in this holding area that also held Paul Clement, Jeffrey Kessler. I'm looking at, you know, recognizable folks from, you know, NFL, from, from, from the news networks, from, from uh, uh, ESPN. It, for, for a lawyer that had never been in any kind of a public setting like that, yeah, maybe a couple, but nothing quite like that. It just blew my mind. And I made so many, so many good friends from it. I was sorry to see the case end, if only because the relationships that were developed would kind of like slow down and not be as frequent and recurring. I know you and I are going to probably talk about a number of things going forward in our careers as new, new stories develop, and I'll always pick up the phone and, and, and want to call you. But that was the best part of Deflategate, uh, just, just the, the, the cool new relationships that you know, Dan and I f- and, and you formed, uh, crossing over so many divides like that, you know, sports, news, media, law. It was, it was, it was fun. It was. It was. Well, we'll, we'll always have a daily fantasy sports, right? That would <laughs> be around forever. We can always talk about that. <laughs> Well, thanks so much, Bob, uh, for taking the time today to you know discuss the Deflate Gate with us. Um, it was a blast. You did a great job covering it. Uh, everyone, I would recommend checking Bob out on Twitter at Bob McGovern Jr. Uh, Bob, what are you working on these days? What other what other stories, cases are you following? Well, we have the uh, Aaron Hernandez's uh, next murder trial coming up here uh, during the winter. Uh, there's the case of Michelle Carter. She's the uh, young woman who allegedly uh, coaxed her high school boyfriend to kill himself uh, via text messages. And so it brings up uh, the intersection of criminal law and the First Amendment. And, uh, of course, the day-to-day stuff that uh, kind of shows up in the docket that uh, I'm not expecting, but I'm always excited to see. Great. Yeah, I was definitely looking forward to hearing more about, you know, the Hernandez second trial. It's, uh, you know, that's its own crazy case to begin with, obviously, but, uh, Patriots have a way of finding themselves in the courtroom. It seems. Yeah. Um, I I know you joked about daily fantasy a a moment ago. Um, but there's a, there's a federal criminal investigation going on, supposedly going on, um, out of Boston, focusing on uh, some of the activities that took place last year with DraftKings and FanDuel. Have you heard anything about the status of those inve- of that investigation? Because it's been it's been crickets for the past year. Uh, nothing coming out of the Boston U.S. Attorney's Office. You know, I had heard rumors about certain things from sources outside of that office. Um, but I haven't been able to substantiate things that I can report. But uh, I, I have my ear to the ground, and uh, you know I'll be paying attention. And I'm sure my colleague uh, Kurt Woodward over at our, our competitors <laughs> on Marcy Boulevard is paying too. Yeah, he's a pretty good one. Uh, he's probably uh, you know standing uh, outside of the U.S. Attorney's office as we speak. So you're going to have to hustle to. Uh, scoop him on that story, but uh, you probably have some very good sources that he doesn't, and uh, I don't know what's going to come out of that, but uh, they haven't announced that it's been closed, so uh, I I would expect they're just taking their time, and at some point we'll hear something. 
and you might be the first to report it. Or first to file, as it were. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks again, Bob. Really appreciate it. Uh, Have a good rest of your weekend, buddy. Thanks, guys. An honor, Bob. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.